Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. My name is Leah Parody. And my name is Brian Krim. So we are historians who watch a lot of movies and TV, and whenever stuff is set in the past, we can't help but notice that whatever is going on when the film was made seems to show up on the screen. That's how this project started, the two of us trading examples of historical TV shows and movies where it was really obvious to us, because we get paid to think this way for a living, that the people who made them were really wanting to talk about their present without looking like that's what they were doing. Sometimes it's not so obvious. And we're here to point that stuff out. We assume there are a lot of people who love TV and movies and history, just like us. So we've created this podcast with those people in mind. We hope to entertain and inform while we amuse ourselves. Hollywood has probably never made a movie or TV show with a historic setting that wasn't really about the time when it was made. MASH, the movie and the TV show, was set in the Korean War, which was history by then, so they could talk about the Vietnam War, which was a current event. So we decided that in this first season of Lies Agreed Upon, we would look at how another event that had a huge impact on the American psyche, 9-11, was processed through film and TV. Even two decades later, the influence of 9-11 can be found on screens big and small. It might seem as if it's about the Spartans and the Persians, but 300 is really about 9-11. And it might seem like Steven Spielberg is telling the story of how Israel avenged the murder of their athletes at the 1972 Olympics, but Munich is really about, you guessed it, 9-11. It makes a lot of sense that writers and directors would want to steer clear of directly taking on 9-11. For a long time, the industry didn't really know how to deal with it. The truth is, history is seldom anything people agree upon, and that is certainly the case with 9-11. For years, anything explicitly about 9-11 was criticized for being too soon. So that was one reason to try and find an indirect way to talk about it. Also, some writers and directors wanted to criticize American society and the government whose behavior and policies contributed to the event, but they didn't want to be criticized as un-American or providing aid and comfort to the enemy. And of course, other creative types wanted to capitalize on the huge box office potential of post-9-11 flag-waving, but they didn't want to be branded as racists and militarists. All of the movies and TV shows that we're going to look at fit into these categories somehow. So let's get started. The three movies we'll be looking at today are Ridley Scott's 2005 crusade saga, Kingdom of Heaven, Oliver Stone's 2004 biopic, Alexander, and Zack Snyder's 2006 extravaganza, 300. We decided to start with these because they all fall into a classic Hollywood genre, the sword and sandals epic. What these films have in common is also what makes them weird, because when you think about that kind of movie, you think of it as something way outdated and not a popular draw. But in the years since 9-11, they keep showing up. Sure, 
Ridley Scott made Gladiator in the 1990s, but part of what made that movie such a success was that it sort of reimagined the genre. You weren't expecting him to go back to the well again. And Oliver Stone, whose obsession with history is usually, even notoriously, centered in 20th century American history, is suddenly interested in Alexander the Great. And superhero movie auteur Zack Snyder decided that the best follow-up to his remake of Dawn of the Dead was a graphic novel revisiting a battle from ancient Greek history. So what are the lies agreed upon that these movies have in common? First, let's say that lengthy wars are inevitable and justified in the name of defending civilization against barbarians. And two, the East, broadly defined, and the West have always and will always be enemies. So what we're going to do is give you a brief synopsis of each of these movies to remind you if you've seen them before and to set the scene if you haven't seen them yet so that you can understand what it is that we're getting at. First, let's talk about Kingdom of Heaven, which, as I said earlier, was made in 2005. It was directed by Ridley Scott. It was written by William Monaghan. It stars Orlando Bloom, Liam Neeson, Jeremy Irons, Ava Green, Edward Norton, Brendan Gleeson, and even a brief cameo by Michael Sheen, among others. Bloom is a French blacksmith named Balian, who heads off to the Crusades because his life is really crappy in Europe. In fact, at the beginning of the film, we get a helpful scroll telling us that Europe is a mess and that men are fleeing to the east to seek their fortunes. The year is 1184, to be precise, which is between the Second and Third Crusades for those keeping score. Jerusalem is ruled over by Christians at this point in the 200-year collision between Christianity and Islam. Apparently, because he's the bastard son of a knight, played by Liam Neeson, uh, who tries to convince his son, Balian, to go east, uh, Balian is very quickly able to learn all the skills he needs, like being an expert swordsman. Once we're in Jerusalem, it isn't really what the average viewer is expecting. After their previous victory, the Christians have set up a king in Jerusalem, played by Edward Norton, who is trying to keep the multi-ethnic, multi-religion, multi-racial territory in a workable peace. And he hates it when the fundamentalists show up. In other words, crusaders. The rest of the movie is the tolerant, enlightened Christians, including the king, his advisor Tiberius, played by Jeremy Irons, Balian, and the king's sister, Sibylla, played by Ava Green, as well as the equally reasonable Saladin, played really well by Syrian actor and filmmaker Ghassan Massoud, trying to stop the region from blowing up into a war because of the ignorant, violence-loving, radical Christian Knights Templar, who act sort of as the posse for Sibylla's husband, Guy de Lusignan. Initially, when Balian arrives and claims the lands given to his now-dead father, the plot is dedicated to showing what a genius he is at improving these lands, and also the wise leadership of the king. Uh, we are introduced first to Saladin's chief minister, and then to the fabled Saladin himself. Uh, both of these Islamic characters are, are also eager to keep the peace so that this a glorious melting pot uh, can prosper. 
There are a series of escalating events, of course, all caused by either Guy himself or the leader of the group of Knights Templar, Reynard, who is played by Brendan Gleeson. Uh, multiple times, a major war is averted due to the tolerant leadership on both sides, but eventually war is provoked. Reynard kills Saladin's sister, and so Saladin is forced to respond. And that gives Guy and his fundamentalist followers the excuse to drag the entire society into a giant confrontation between Muslims and Christians. And this battle becomes a siege, which by definition is a stalemate. Eventually, Balian and Saladin parlay and agree to spare the innocent people of Jerusalem by having the Christians retreat and leave the city to Saladin, who also very famously um, allows Christians to worship and Jews to worship and, and keep that melting pot aspect of, of uh, Jerusalem together, even in the midst of his victory. Of course, this also means that the lands and title that Balian inherited from his crusader father must also be abandoned. At the end of the movie, we find Balian living happily as a blacksmith in France again, with Sibylla as his wife. The next wave of crusaders comes through town on their way to retake Jerusalem yet again, but Balian refuses to join them. And a final message on the screen reads that nearly a thousand years later, peace in the Holy Land still remains elusive. You know, I think it's time for a representative clip. And it seems to me that ever since Braveheart, every one of these sweeping historical dramas needs a big speech. So let's listen to Balian describing the true meaning of the kingdom of heaven as he tries to rally the defense of the city. None of us took this city from Muslims. No Muslim of the great army now coming against us was born when this city was lost. We fight over an offense we did not give against those who were not alive to be offended. What is Jerusalem? Your holy places lie over the Jewish temple that the Romans pulled down. The Muslim places of worship lie over yours. Which is more holy? The wall? The mosque? The sepulcher? Who has claim? No one has claim. All have claim. That is blasphemy. Be quiet. We defend this city, not to protect these stones, but the people living within these walls. Yeah, it's interesting how that starts out as excusing the Christian presence, an offense we did not give, but then it extols the multicultural city, which earns Balian a derisive blasphemy charge from the bishop. No one has claim, all have claim. It's a great message, but I think Ridley Scott and writer William Monaghan are, are getting the 12th century to do a lot of heavy lifting in the cultural commentary department, uh, but they aren't alone, bringing us to our second film. Oliver Stone, in the same way, seems to have thought Alexander the Great would be a good vehicle for him to work out what he was feeling in response to America's current state of affairs in the Middle East. Alexander was released in 2004. It was written by Oliver Stone and Christopher Kyle, and it stars Colin Farrell as Alexander, Val Kilmer as his father, Angelina Jolie as his mother, 
Anthony Hopkins as Ptolemy, who is the narrator of the film, Rosario Dawson, Jared Leto, among many others. And the film is what you might expect. It is based on the life of Alexander the Great, king of Macedon, who conquered Asia Minor, Egypt, Persia, and part of ancient India. We start the film showing some of the key moments of Alexander's youth, then getting to his invasion of the mighty Persian Empire, and of course his untimely death. Uh, it also outlines his early life, uh, including his difficult relationship with his father, Philip II, and his strained and probably inappropriate feelings toward his mother, Olympias, and also, I think most dramatically, the, the conquest of the Persian Empire in 331 BC. Uh, it also gives a nod to his detailed plans to reform his empire and the attempts he made to reach the end of the known world, ultimately what will prove his undoing. And Stone can't seem to decide here whether Alexander's mission of blending civilizations is laudable or fanciful, and neither do the characters. Uh, It is also clear throughout the film that Stone is flummoxed by how to represent Alexander's sexuality. Alexander's tutor was Aristotle, which of course we would think of today as the uh, enlightened philosopher who is bestowing wisdom upon Alexander and his classmates, but in fact he had some pretty nasty things to say about the Persians. The East has a way of swallowing men and their dreams. Why are the Persians so cruel? (laughs) That is not the subject for today, Nearchus, but uh, it is true. The Oriental races uh, are known for their barbarity and their slavish devotion to their senses. Excess in all things is the undoing of men. That is why we Greeks are superior. We practice control of our senses. Moderation. (laughs) We hope. (laughs) And what of Achilles, a Troy master? Was he not excessive? (sighs) Achilles simply lacks restraint. He dominates other men so completely that even when he withdraws from battle, crazed with grief over his dead lover, Patroclus, he seriously endangers his own army. He is a deeply selfish man. Then would you say that the love between Achilles and Patroclus is a corrupting one? When men lie together in lust, it is a surrender to the passions and does nothing for the excellence in us. But when men lie together and knowledge and virtue are passed between them, that is pure and excellent. So there's a lot to unpack there with uh, Aristotle and his you know, over-the-top Hellenism, you might want to say. But one of the, the takeaway quotes that probably is very appropriate to an audience in the United States in 2004 was the idea that the East has a way of swallowing men and their dreams, a warning for Alexander, perhaps Oliver Stone's notoriously subtle warning to us. Also, you get a sense of the, uh, you know, the xenophobia and the, and the kind of unbridled nationalism of, of Aristotle with this idea that the Oriental races are known for their barbarity, that they have a slavish de- devotion to the senses, which is kind of funny when to anyone who kind of studies classical Greek civilization. Uh, and as you talked about earlier, there's a you know uncomfortable and not very clear idea about uh, love between men and what's considered a good version of, of love between men and what's considered bad. Uh, so there, you get a whole a real window into the uh, the, the Greek worldview um, before Alexander begins his quest east. And at the end of it all, Alexander's story doesn't quite work for the message of tolerance. 
because the Greeks were the ones who didn't seem so keen. Uh, and Oliver Stone couldn't decide whether Babylon and India were awesome and way more fun than Greece, nor could he deal with Alexander's homosexuality because it got in the way of his textbook exoticization of the East. But 300 doesn't have any of those problems. 300 was released in 2006 based on a graphic novel by Frank Miller, who in turn was inspired by The 300 Spartans, a movie that was made in 1962. The screenplay is by Zack Snyder and Kurt Johnstad, and it stars Gerard Butler as King Leonidas, Lena Headey as his wife, Queen Gorgo, Rodrigo Santoro as the mighty Xerxes, and among others, Dominic West. So in the battle, Thermopylae, which was fought in 480 BC, an alliance of Greek city-states fought back the invading Persian army in a mountain pass. Vastly outnumbered, this was one of the most famous last stands of history. Persian king Xerxes led an army of well over 100,000 men to Greece and was confronted by the 300 Spartans and various other Greek soldiers, but we only really learn about uh, the Spartans. Xerxes waited for 10 days for King Leonidas to surrender or withdraw. Left with no options, he pushed forward. Leonidas and the 300 sacrificed themselves to allow Greece more time to prepare and to fight another day. The movie version of this story sets the elders of Sparta, who refused to okay Leonidas's plan to keep the Persians at bay, against the brave 300 men of action. It's revealed, as the movie goes on, that at least one of those politicians has been bribed by Xerxes. Played as a true slimeball by Dominic West, he forces Gorgo to have sex with him in exchange for a promise to send reinforcements to her husband. But he doesn't, and then he tries to publicly shame Gorgo to further discredit her and King Leonidas. Gorgo kills him. Her husband might be dead, but virtuous Sparta will live on in her son, and with the leadership of Leonidas's right-hand man, Dilius, one year later, the Greeks fight as a united force and repel the Persians. In between the bloody fighting, there are moments to speak about a class of civilizations, mythologizing Sparta as a democratic racial stronghold, and Persia as the Colossus from the East. Let's listen to the very famous, very replayed, fateful meeting between Xerxes and King Leonidas. Let me guess. You must be Xerxes. Come, Leonidas. Let us reason together. It would be a regrettable waste. It would be nothing short of madness for you, brave king, and your valiant troops to perish. You have many slaves, Xerxes. A few warriors. It won't be long before they fear my spears more than your whips. There will be no glory in your sacrifice. I will erase even the memory of Sparta from the histories. Every piece of Greek parchment shall be burned. Every Greek historian and every scribe shall have their eyes put out and their tongues cut for their mouths. Why, honoring the very name of Sparta or Leonidas will be punishable by death. The world will never know you existed at all. 
the world will know that free men stood against a tyrant. So I think what you have there are all the things you just mentioned. You've got the clash of civilizations idea, nothing very subtle there. Uh, Sparta is a pure democratic free society and Persia is an empire of slaves. And those things come loud and clear in that film. But, you know, why have we chosen these three movies? You know, why did the writers, directors, and producers all decide to make them when they did? Why did they think the movie-going public would want to watch these movies? Simply by the way we've summarized these films, you're probably starting to pick up on some common elements. But to make things clear, let's remind everyone just what was going on between 2004 and 2006 when the movies were released. The George W. Bush administration... Uh, had launched an invasion of Iraq in March 2003 after misleading the public about connections between Saddam Hussein and 9-11. Bush, of course, famously declared mission accomplished in May of the same year, although the war dragged on for another eight years, costing hundreds of thousands of lives, most of them Iraqi, and untold treasure. And he infamously called the war a crusade, alarming even the conservative National Review, which depicted a cartoon Bush as a Knight Templar. Meanwhile, the war in Afghanistan was also raging and had been since right after 9-11 when the U.S. invaded. The movie going public in the West watched wars rage in these two Muslim countries It was styled by media and pundits and some lazy historians as a clash of civilizations. And it was at this moment that Hollywood felt compelled to excavate the history of the region where those clashes had supposedly been going on for millennia. The problem is that George W. Bush himself, amazingly I know, was unable to articulate a coherent strategy or message about what came to be known as the global war on terror. Let's listen to Bush's famous address to a joint session of Congress just days after 9-11. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Americans have known wars. But for the past 136 years, they have been wars on foreign soil, except for one Sunday in 1941. Americans have known the casualties of war, but not at the center of a great city on a peaceful morning. Americans have known surprise attacks, but never before on thousands of civilians. All of this was brought upon us in a single day and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. Americans have many questions tonight. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organizations known as Al-Qaeda. They are some of the murderers indicted for bombing American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya and responsible for bombing the USS Cole. Al-Qaeda is to terror what the mafia is to crime. But its goal is not making money. Its goal is remaking the world and imposing its radical beliefs on people everywhere. 
The terrorists practice a fringe form of Islamic extremism that has been rejected by Muslim scholars and the vast majority of Muslim clerics, a fringe movement that perverts the peaceful teaching of Islam. The terrorist directive commands them to kill Christians and Jews, to kill all Americans, and make no distinctions among military and civilians, including women and children. Notice how he distinguishes between Islam and the radical extremists represented by al-Qaeda, and compare that to this impromptu press conference on the White House lawn, which was held just a day earlier. We have to be on alert in America. We're a nation of law, a nation of civil right. We need to go back to work tomorrow, and we will. But we need to be alert to the fact that um, that these evildoers still exist. We haven't seen this kind of barbarism in a long period of time. No one could have conceivably imagined uh, suicide bombers burrowing into our society and then emerging all on the same day to fly their aircraft, fly U.S. aircraft into buildings full of innocent people and show no remorse. And uh, this is a new kind of uh, a new kind of evil. And uh, we all we'll uh, we understand. And the American people are beginning to understand. Now, this is this 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 this, this crusade. This war on terrorism uh, is going to take a while. I hope you caught the crusade. Ah, uh, the crusade. There. The crusade. Yes. <laughs> so now let's return to the plots of these movies and return to the lies agreed upon. In the aftermath of 9-11, the lies agreed upon were that lengthy wars were inevitable and justified in the name of defending civilization against barbarians, and that the East and the West have always and will always be enemies. Bush's speech to Congress you know, is a careful expression of the clash of civilizations, a sentiment that seemed more like ballions on the walls of Jerusalem. There are good Muslims, and it's a shame it had to come to this, but this war must be fought. Whereas Bush's crusade press conference comment, where he attacks the evildoers and condemns the barbarism trying to attack a superior Western civilization, is all 300. Except, if we were being historically accurate, it's the Spartans who are the savage barbarians, and the Persians are the cultured civilization. And Xerxes even expresses it that way, calling Spartans a tribe, which is this sort of coded indication of this lesser group of people sort of farther (laughs) down along the road to progress. Yeah, too bad. Facts get in the way, though, of a good story. But, you know, Alexander, though, uh, (laughs) is muddled and wavers between preaching this sort of clash of civilization thesis, certainly Aristotle believed that, versus an idea of coexistence and and mutual respect. So I think Alexander, for all of its faults, is a more accurate description of American foreign policy in the Middle East. It's muddled, improvised, and swallowed up by the East, like all who came before it. Yes, it's painfully clear by now that that September 17th, 2001 Bush speech 
really did usher in an era of endless war, something our three movies also very much address. The Crusades, Alexander's Conquest, and then nearly a century of Greece versus Persia, followed rapidly by Greece versus Greece. So what have we learned from the endless wars, both real and imagined? First, the fundamentalists are the most violent, and often they are Christian or representing the West in some way. The Spartans are the bloodthirsty death cultists, and Alexander's Macedonians are wandering the known world for no discernible reason other than treasure and the glory of conquest. Second, if you think you'll be greeted as liberators, think again. The Crusaders learned this the hard way, as did the Persians, and quite frankly, later the Spartans for that matter. Alexander's enlightened idea of blending civilizations was actually less popular with the Greeks than with the people that he conquered. And I think finally, the wars pit the disciplined and heroic West versus the chaotic hordes of the East. In 300, the Persians are literally monstrous. And in all the films, defeat comes at the hands of the East. It is only because of their vast numbers, indifference to death, and some sort of enduring slave mentality. And whether you are uh, Balian or King Leonidas or a uh, up-and-coming Alexander, you're still carrying this very um, exotic view of the East in your head, and, and that's what you bring to the table. So in each episode, what we'd like to do is after we've talked about the movies in the historical context that they were made, we'd like to also add some additional observations that we have about the movies and their interpretations of history in the hopes that if you decide after listening to this that you want to go back and watch these movies again or watch them for the first time with fresh eyes, now that you've listened to us go on about them, that you'll have these ideas and these observations in mind. So first, to talk about the representation of the East, the best one to start with is Kingdom of Heaven, because Ridley Scott and Monaghan are trying to upend the general pervading ideas about Islam and the East that are in the air in the early 2000s as a result of 9-11. The fact that Saladin is portrayed in Kingdom of Heaven as smart and really slow to battle was quite a political statement at the time. And the fact that it's this group of Christians who are spoiling for a fight and who are, quite frankly, extremely uncivilized. I mean, Brendan Gleeson might as well be sort of dragging his knuckles along the ground and like scratching his crotch every two minutes in this movie because he's portrayed as such a, a sort of Neanderthal. Um, but at the same time, I got to say, Scott and Monaghan still only get partial points because of how Balian is portrayed. He is still being portrayed as this European hero who is miraculously capable of anything and everything. 
I mean, he was a blacksmith for Christ's sake. He wouldn't have been able to read, but by the time we get to the middle of the movie, he has basically come into this territory where it's just assumed that he's surrounded by all of these inferior people who have just been sitting there waiting for his guidance for centuries. I mean, (laughs) exactly. Like, so he, he comes to basically desert somehow as an expert on irrigation techniques. And everyone accepts his leadership just right off the bat. Like, okay, you're this bastard son of Liam Neeson just walking right into this kingdom. And all of a sudden you're just heralded as the next best thing, the next genius. Um, yeah, the, the siege craft was out of ancient Roman battlefield tradition. And like, how did you know this while you were working in a mud pit in France, oh, by the way? And it's because of his intrinsic <laughs> value as a, a hero of uh, the Western tradition, helping these poor people get along. There's a lot of unspoken ideas of Western superiority here, despite what I think is a more balanced and measured approach to a, a complex subject in a complex time of history. So yeah, it's it's a mixed bag. Whereas Alexander, I think it's really a similar idea of bringing intrinsic value of the West, in this case, classical Greek civilization, to the exotic, barbaric, yet very attractive portrayal of the East, but one that is old school exotization, you could say. And and I think you had some good observations about how Stone doesn't really do this in the script or even with words, but in this, you know, his sultry cinematic style here of how whenever they get to portraying Persia and Babylon itself. Yeah, I mean, it's like a Cecil B. DeMille movie. Oliver Stone seems to feel the need to insert musical numbers that are intended to portray the exotic, you know, the exotic East and Babylon, these sort of longing gazes, either attempts at seduction of Alexander by the woman who becomes his wife, or the longing gazes between Alexander and his male lover in this environment. But in all ways, it's sort of that he's being seduced by the East, right? And that is really this tired old trope. One last thing about Alexander, it's also that the, you know, he's seduced, but his companions, and that's what they are known, you know, his 12 best and brightest warriors are not seduced like he is. And so it's a weakness in Alexander that he is, he swallowed up by the East, whereas the, uh, the Macedonians' um, virility and their strength, and even though they may have, lovers, they're, they're other Greeks at least, but that somehow makes them stronger in a way than Alexander who who dies too young. And, and so that's why you have an old uh, Ptolemy still left around, left to, to tell the story and, and categorize all the ways that Alexander had seemingly failed. And it seems like an odd way to kind of end your biopic is by with a muddled message about what was Alexander's real legacy. Well, it's clear that Stone didn't know what that legacy was himself. He didn't know how he wanted to communicate it. Yeah, I wonder whether what he was trying to do there was in fact say that the West is muddled in its desires and motivations and objectives and that that's the parallel to Alexander. I mean, maybe that's what he was trying to do, but it it doesn't work because you don't get that message. You're not you're never clear what it is that Oliver Stone is trying to say that Alexander was doing. 
However, in 300, the message is extremely clear. There's no nuance. The East is savage, cruel, strange, bizarre, barbaric. It's very, very clear, isn't it? It is, uh, it's an, and that's what attracted people to the, the film, is just the different types of warriors, the monsters, the fact that Xerxes, who in real life is like, I think like 5'10", is, looks like he's 7, 8 feet tall, uh, and towers over Leonidas, and I think one reviewer called him sort of this, you know, a savage hairdresser, you know, to, to show the, the effeminization <laughs> of, of the Persians as well. And that that's, you know, it's visually connoting the idea that the Spartans are heroic men with six-pack abs, and the Persians are a just polyglot group of savage monsters coming to overwhelm what is a pure white civilization. And it's one of the reasons why the film is still so beloved by those in sort of extremist circles as a love song to the West, whatever that means. And there's so many problems with that because we hate to nitpick, but Sparta was not a democratic society. It was not a free society. It was, in essence, a toxic masculine death cult that killed slaves for the fun of it. This was not a group of people that anybody should be hoping to emulate. And the fact that Sparta does not survive long term, that Sparta's society does not end up being the birthplace of democracy or Western civilization. The flaws are very clear. But as you say, in the extremist, white supremacist, incel communities, the imagery of 300 is incredibly intoxicating. And the dangers of that are huge. And the other thing I'd like to point out is that listeners might be thinking, yeah, but what does this have to do with 9-11? All of this is part of the legacy of 9-11. All of this injured and besieged white Western masculinity is very much part of the legacy of 9-11. We can see it playing out over all of the years since the attack. I think that's dead on. We will end every podcast episode with our recommendations and and what you kind of hinted and, and picked up on mine, which is I want listeners to watch 300 with this podcast in mind and see this toxic white supremacist incel messaging in, in a film that still is remarkably very popular. Uh, it is laughable in places. I mean, people um, like to maybe imbibe in something while watching 300 because it's a good film to do that, but, but really la- to watch it in a serious way and not serious way, but you know, watch it and see that the film's enduring popularity is something to kind of worry about. And maybe the immediate war on terror, that context is faded, but the racial stuff, as you said, really endures. And um, I think listening to this and picking up on our points may help you uh, contextualize a, a film that is, Uh, really crazily still popular. Yeah, and I think that Kingdom of Heaven is worth watching 
because it really does do an admirable job of trying to complicate the story of the Crusades and the, you know, West meets East. The problem, or, you know, not necessarily a problem, but perhaps one of the reasons why it wasn't more popular when it came out, it was precisely because the general viewing public wasn't ready to have that narrative complicated. In that moment, there were really not enough audience members who wanted to think critically about the styling of these wars as a crusade and what that really meant. Um, and so, you know, The Last Kingdom is is perhaps worth going back to now to see this admirable attempt being made by uh, Scott and Monaghan to challenge this general racialized conversation that was going on at the time. Now, I don't know about you, but Alexander, I can't recommend Alexander. It's just, uh, it's a mess. And it's a mess both in the message about civilizations and also how obvious it is that Oliver Stone is just so uncomfortable <laughs> with Alexander's sexuality. I don't know what you, how you feel about Alexander, but that would be my take uh, or lack of recommendation for our listeners. Yeah, you know, I would say watch the 10-minute uh, Battle of Guagamela clip because it's impressive on YouTube, and then maybe that's about it because it's, uh, <laughs> it's I, my students seem to enjoy that, and I like to show it to them for, you know, the the grandeur of it, but you've got to tell Oliver Stone, you know, stick to America in the sixties and then move on because he doesn't know what he wants to say and we shouldn't have to interpret it for him. And I think we did our best in this podcast so that you don't, you know, we watched it so you don't have to. There you go. It was selfless on our part, really. (laughs) And so I think that's probably the best place to, to leave episode one of lies agreed upon uh, and hope you'll join us for the next one. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was edited by Michael Patterson and Leah Parody. The theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lies Agreed Upon. That's at Lies underscore upon. 